Hello, everyone, and welcome to Trawler Talk, the official podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, the long-range cruising authority. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Jeff Moser. Before we get into today's episode, a word from our sponsor, Atlantis Marine Finance. When it comes to getting a loan for your new boat, there are a lot of options out there, and not all are created equal. Atlantis Marine Finance focuses solely on the boat and yacht space and understand the complexities that sometimes come with boat buying. For more information on financing your dream boat, head on over to AtlantisMarineFinance.com. Now, on to our episode. So my next guest today needs no introduction. He has been on the Trawler Fest circuit for many years with us, and he is the founder and president of Zimmerman Marine, which he started 43 years ago next year. Steve Zimmerman. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, so could you just tell me a bit about how you got started in this business? Sure. Um, I, I was a, a, a pre-law student and accepted at law school. And in between uh, graduation and, and law school beginning in the fall, I took a summer job on a boat up in New England. Mm-hmm. And uh, while we were cruising up there, we stopped in at the yard that, where the boat had been built in um, Booth Bay Harbor, Maine at Paul Luke's yard. Okay. And I was really enthralled with what I saw there, these main craftsmen working with their hands, building these incredible boats. And um, I got a two-year extension of my law school admission and went to work as an apprentice for Paul Luke and really fell in love with uh, boat repair and boat boat building. And so after a few years of doing that, I moved back to Virginia and started Zimmerman Marine in, in 1981. Wow. And that has expanded to seven repair and service locations all up and down the East Coast. Um it's been quite a ride, I bet. It, it has been quite a ride. It, it uh, We were in one location for something like the first 25 years, and it only took me 25 years to figure out it wasn't a good location. And we had an opportunity to expand to Deltaville, which was sort of expanding with training wheels because it was so close by we could move people and move equipment. And it was a great opportunity to open a second location in, a lo- in an area where there was a concentration of boats, which we don't have in Matthews. And so that we learned a lot from that, and it, it was a good move for us. And then a few years later, another opportunity presented itself. And then what's happened over the past 10 years is that there's been so much movement in the marina market in terms of acquisitions. And uh, these the corporations buying the marinas are comfortable with that model because it's not very different from a real estate model and it's rental per square foot for the slips. Um, but the service part of it is a real blind spot and a lot of liability and, and not a lot of interest. And so it's created some opportunities for us to come in and say, we only do service. Mm-hmm. Uh, let us run a Zimmerman Marine service out of your facility. And um, they get the stability of a rent check every month and, and all the headache of Providing service goes away, and service is who we are and what we do, so we we can add to what they're offering, not take away. Yeah. Symbiotic relationship, it sounds like, that um, everyone benefits. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think service is so challenging. Uh, unless it is your sole or primary focus, it's very hard to be effective. Yeah, and you've made it that, um, you know, it, the success – followed, you know, 43 years in business next year and seven locations. So I bet the first, you know, I wanted to start today and I bet this is a lot of questions, questions you get from boat owners of either new or some, you know, gently or really used boats and is how do they maintain and manage the cost 
of a boat? Yeah, that's really important question to boat owners and mm-hmm. a really challenging one for boat owners and boat yards to, to manage. And I think maybe a place to start with that conversation is the unique challenges of, of this particular repair model because it's unlike the trend uh, in service and all other industries. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is if you take, for example, a, a Honda Accord, they're producing something like 150,000 to 200,000 of that model per year. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably the most successful boat model ever made was the Grand Banks 42, which over a period of 25 years, I think they made about 1,500 of them. So we just don't have that repetitive um, opportunity where you're doing the same task hundreds and hundreds of times. And so you, you have the task and the time and the cost down cold. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's the exact opposite of specialization that modern service requires. You yeah. take your car to the dealer for that brand and there's a mechanic who knows that model. Uh, boat yards are working on such a wide range of boats and there are so few units out there that you don't really repeat the same job twice very often. So mm. Forecasting costs is very challenging. Yeah. So for a boat owner, um, coming in expecting uh, something like you would get servicing your car, where they tell you exactly what it'll be up front, uh, that doesn't happen that often. Now, we we try as much as possible to, to commit to a firm price for a given job, and that's probably our target is about one out of three. So if we can make a third of the things your boat needs and, and tell you ahead of time what it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. That reduces the risk factor. Yeah. And then for everything else, I think a boat owner should ask for and a boat yard should provide their best guess. Yeah. We, we have a word we invented sort of called guesstimate. So <laughs> if we're not comfortable enough to, to give you a firm price, then, w- then we'll give you our best guess. Yeah. And that might be a range. And, if you think about an air conditioning unit that's not charging, you know the range might be five hundred to five thousand yeah. uh, dollars. We just we just don't know. So it helps to authorize a, a defined amount for troubleshooting. You might say, "All right, well, spend up to four hours trying to figure it out, and then let's talk again." Exactly. Yeah, um, I know from reading Max's column how troubleshooting some of these things, like say an AC, it could be a number of things and it, it takes quite a while just to even zero in on something. So, and I, I think that, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I would think that a majority of bone owners are comfortable with the guesstimate because they're, they know that it's quite a moving target. I think that's more true of passage maker readers, cruising people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they just tend to be more realistic and more experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, the general boating public, much less so. Okay. Um, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Now, you, you were saying something interesting before. We said, let's just use this as an example. The Grand Banks 42, and they say they built, we're just going to say 1,500 models. And you've probably had a number of Grand Bank 42s in the yard. And have you seen things done differently on the models where you expected, okay, well, we, we, we repaired this on a hull number 712, and now we're, at, now we're looking at hull number you know, 1,133, and it's completely different. Is that something that you've seen before? Certainly there are changes. You know, they made some substantial model changes here and there, but some things remain constants. For example, the, the steel fuel tanks are a known 
issue. And, and we know, for example, that the deck fill above the tank mm-hmm. uh, can can do in a fuel tank or a shaft seal that's spraying salt water on the on the bottom of the tank. Oh man! So there are some maintenance things we know to look for on that model of boat to to help prolong the life of the tank. Mm-hmm. We also have pretty good numbers on what it would cost to cut a tank apart and, and put new tanks in and how to go about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's pretty unique. There, there, we've done more of that on a Grand Banks 42 than any other model by a factor of 10 probably. Wow. So the lever comfort level with forecasting costs <clears throat> is much higher there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there boats or models that you, you think that are a little bit harder to predict what the costs are going to be just because it's, they only made so few. Yeah, I think that is the issue. Um, it's yeah. a, you know, not unusual to have a boat come in, even though we've been doing this this location for 43 years. We have boats come in all the time they've never seen before. Really? that's I think that's got to be exciting a little bit, no? It certainly makes it challenging and interesting. And, and one of the things we, we talk about with our technicians is it's not a, a job that gets boring because it's repetitive. They're continually challenged. Um, the complexity of boats is always growing. Yeah. They're rarely seeing two of the same thing. Um, so it, it's, it requires a mechanic who's a technician who's creative and, and, and flexible. It, the job is much more of a technician job than it was at one time, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it, you know, in, in, when I started in 81, <clears throat> what was on a typical 40 foot cruising boat compared to what we have now is just staggering and, and they're better boats for it. They're more comfortable and safer and perform better and better for the environment, all kinds of, um, things we've gained, but they're more challenging to service. And I think one of the things I've seen as a big change is that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was much more of how to repair something, whether it be a boat owner or a boat yard. If if you had these tools or these parts, you could service it. More and more, it's pretty binary in that if it doesn't work, you need a new one. Got it. There are a lot of components that just can't economically be fixed. And I think for a boat owner, whereas we used to teach, here are the things you need to know, here's the tools you should have, here's the parts to have on board. I tell boat owners now it's, I think, more realistic to think through each system and think about what is my plan B when that fails. Yeah. Assume you can't fix it. You can't replace it while you're cruising. Um, It quits. What's your workaround? And, right. and to go at it that way. Mm-hmm. That leads me into my next question. And is for Zimmerman, what is your, your goal to provide the customers? Well, that's something we talk about all the time. And expectation and communication are certainly the keys. And I think from a customer's perspective, what they can and should expect is some, some best effort to forecast cost, even if it's a rough guesstimate. Give me a range. You should have some idea. I'm going to spend twenty to thirty thousand dollars on this visit, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, there should be a, a work order with everything itemized and, and spelled out in detail, and what's going to be done with associated cost predictions. Um, and there should be a means to update the customer. So, for example, we have a report we run called a project cost update, and once we're into the project, we'll periodically send a, a report, and it lists all the tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what we forecasted. Here's the cost to date. So we're, we're tracking how we're doing on each item. Got it. We, we always say, and I think 
the customer has a right not to be surprised when they get the bill. Yeah. Uh, that's really the, the, the worst part of um, what can happen in a boatyard other than quality is you're expecting to spend $5,000 and you get a bill for $15,000. Um, and it's not that the 15000 is unfair or wrong. It's just that along the way, yeah. the unexpected costs of the additional items were not properly noted. So I think the customer has a, a right and a responsibility to ask for that, and I think the boatyard has a responsibility to provide it. Mm-hmm. And how are you communicating with these customers? Is this email? Are you calling? Are you sending texts? Is it all this? Is it all three? We send a formal uh, proposal for every job, every mm-hmm. task um, by email, and then uh, we're communicating by phone, by email. Some customers have a preference <clears throat> one way or the other, um, so it might be phone. Uh, but then we're also sending on the on the projects that are more than just a couple weeks of work. We're sending this report, which shows everything to date, predicted and actual through this time frame. So the customer is getting updates periodically through the job. Mm-hmm. Good, good. You know, and I thought of something else. Um, a lot of the people that read Passage Maker are DIYers. Um, the people want to look over the shoulder of your technicians sometimes to see how things are done and things are wired and things move throughout the boat. Is that, is that an issue or sure it's a liability? Well, we're not really much of a DIY um, service model, Mm -hmm. uh, but we do encourage and support customers working on their boats while we're working on them. So we want to support that. We think that's part of, um, part of boat ownership. And and I think everybody here respects owners who want to learn. And so we're not, uh, we don't have a problem with sharing information like that and and helping a customer. Of course, on the other side of that equation, the customer needs to be mindful of the time. So if you're interrupting somebody and asking questions or asking for help, that, that time has to get charged somewhere. So uh, some cases we might say, why don't you, um, buy four hours or two hours of this technician's time. Let's have him train you on how to change your impeller. Um, Let's have him train you on how to change the oil and and pay for the time. And and that way you get personal instruction on your boat. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't get any better than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good solution, I think. And uh, I think it benefits both the technician and the boat owner. Absolutely, yeah. Before we move on to talking about like looking at used boats and how to buy a used boat. Um, I just wanted to touch on one other thing and like we did do a little bit, but how do you, how has the business changed since you began in 1981 and in what ways are good, what ways are bad and what, what stayed the same, if anything? (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's start with um, the, uh, the good. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, it's easier to communicate. I mean, I have, I still have in my drawer uh, photographs. I used to have a customer who was based in New York City who was a naval architect and a, had a beautiful boat, was a real perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And I would have to take photographs, get them developed, mail them to him. He would then mark up the photographs and write comments on the back and mail them back to me. And then we'd have a phone call. Uh, oh. Now, of course, we communicate online. Uh, you can go on the on the boat with a FaceTime or uh, any video format and, and show the customer what it is you're seeing mm-hmm. in real time. Yeah. So uh, it's gotten easier to communicate. Certainly the boats um, are much more comfortable and much 
more reliable than, than they were when I started in the business. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the sun and the shadow, the other side of that is that that complexity means the boats are harder to service, harder for a technician to have the knowledge and skills, and harder for a boat owner to, to do the same. And there's just a lot more that can go wrong. Uh, you look at a sailboat from 1981, you know, I mean, what did it have? It had a start battery and a house battery and an alternator and and maybe a battery charger and and a little uh, a little fuse box, um, maybe <laughs> yeah. 12 fuses in it. That same boat now has got an inverter and a generator and a solar panel and um, refrigeration and, yeah. Uh, and it's a much, much more comfortable boat to use, but it's far more complicated. Yeah. I think what hasn't changed is that um, there's still the root, the base of all of this, which is the enjoyment we all get from being on a boat on the water, um, has not changed. The vehicle has and what goes with that has, but um, the passion and the enjoyment and the fun of uh, being out on the water that hasn't changed. Yeah. That's why we're, you know, we saw the big spike in boat sales during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and it's still sort of showing its signs. But what do you tell people when they ask you, Steve, what's the best way to buy a used boat? And it could be any boat. Well, the first thing I would say is that that has changed um, in the past 20 years radically. And uh, the technology has changed and the business model has not. So what I mean by that is, 20, 25 years ago, if you were searching for a used boat, you did not have access to a multiple listing service. That mm-hmm. was that was a closed loop only for boat brokers. So you would have to go to a broker and ask that person to help you find a boat, and they would then interact with other brokers on your behalf. Mm-hmm. With the advent of Yacht World, uh, it put that um, technology in the hands of the, the boat buyer. So uh, you now have access to boats all around the world and a great search engines for your particular niche that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it has done is eliminate that filter. So now people are interacting with directly with the broker who represents the seller. And whereas in real estate, some country, some states have prohibitions against that. Uh, there are none in, in the marine industry. And so I do uh, feel strongly that it's, in most cases, problematic to work with the brokers representing the seller. Their responsibility, their primary responsibility is to maximize the sales price mm-hmm. in terms for their client, the seller. And I think a boat buyer is better served by somebody who's really representing their interest. It's not, it doesn't take Yacht World out of the equation. That's an incredibly valuable tool for all of us. Mm-hmm. But um, it becomes a joint process where you and your broker are interacting with the brokers who represent the, the sellers. So my first piece of advice would be have someone working uh, on your behalf to help you buy the boat and let them be the one to interact with the other brokers. Mm-hmm. That's a good start. Um, and that leads into the next one. Um, these, Whoever this person is should be able to tell you that there's nothing waiting for you, a big surprise after the purchase that's going to be you know five zeros after it. You know, Jeff, you hit on, I think, the most, the thorniest part of the whole process and um, the one that is not well addressed by the current model. And what I mean by that is the uh, ethics for the yacht brokers uh, prohibits them from recommending a marine surveyor. 
And there's a good reason for that. They, they were concerned about a disreputable broker pairing up with a surveyor who is seller friendly, let's say, and is, is pretty soft on finding mm-hmm. deficiencies. Um, we take the exact opposite approach, which is there's probably nothing more important in that process than the survey. And so we're going to do our best. I say we, we have a program where we represent both buyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever it is who's representing you, you want a bloodhound for a surveyor. You want somebody who's going to find everything and, and, and identify it and explain it to you. It doesn't mean you shouldn't buy the boat, but to your point, it does mean you go in with eyes wide open and um, you make sure before you accept that boat and, and move on to closing that you know, okay, I'm going to spend $300,000 to buy this boat. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost me fifty to $75,000 to fix the um, deficiencies and, and add things that are on our wish list. And when we're all done post-purchase, post-refit, we'll have three seventy-five in this boat. Mm-hmm. And it's not that three seventy-five is a problem. It's only a problem if you thought it was going to be three hundred. <laughs> Yeah. So we, we want to eliminate as many of those unknowns as we can. And so you, for a cruising powerboat, you're going to want an uh, excellent marine surveyor and an excellent marine mechanic, two different people. And for a typical, let's say a cruising powerboat yeah. above 40 feet, you're probably looking at two days of, of their time, not one day. Two days of their time on board, and those are those yeah. the surveyor, the day that the surveyor and the, the marine surveyor and the mechanic is on board are probably the two most important days in that pre-purchase process. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Well and said. What can you just to ballpark? The costs are different throughout the country. What would you expect the cost of the boat, uh, the cost of the surveyor and the mechanic, in in uh, comparison to the cost of the boat? Uh, it's driven by boat length, but let's just say for a, a $500,000 boat mm-hmm. for that inspection and the travel and everything that goes with it, you might be in for, uh, certainly seven to $10,000, um, mm-hmm. for that process. So you want to have vetted that boat, uh, as best you can before you commit to survey, because that's a pretty expensive process. Yeah. Yeah. And how does one that's not, you know, maybe owns a few boats. How does one find a marine surveyor? How do they vet the marine surveyor themselves? So there are um, a couple of different things a boat owner can do. And first thing I would say is ask the selling broker for three names and cross them off your list. Got it. And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but there's something to that. Um, I would not be wanting uh, to use a surveyor recommended by the selling broker, unless I knew and trusted that broker from prior experience. Mm-hmm. Having done that, I would say the next thing would be to ask people in the area. If, you, if the boat's in a marina, um, go down to that marina on a weekend and chat with people and find out when they bought the boat, who do they use and look for a name that comes up several times. Um, and the third thing you can do is ask uh, if there's a boatyard nearby, ask them because the boatyard's, know most of the surveyors and they certainly respect and appreciate the good ones um, because it keeps them out of trouble. All good suggestions. Yeah. Ask around word of mouth. So what's it looking like in fall in your locations now? We got a, seven different locations down the coast. So what's happening now at uh, Zimmerman Marine? Well, it's a transitional time of year. We have a, a lot of boats that are heading to the Caribbean or, or Florida for the winter. So those boats have been 
perhaps in New England or, or on Chesapeake Bay during the summer, mm-hmm. uh, and now they're all heading out. Uh, and we have an influx of boats uh, from Virginia and Maryland primarily, where boats are coming in for the winter, uh, getting winterized and stored on land, covered, uh, and then submitting their requests for winter work. The yards and uh, we have in North Carolina and South Carolina, it's more business as usual. People are not winterizing uh, at those yards, um, just kind of getting their boats put to bed for the winter season. Well, Steve, I wanted to uh, thank you for your time today, and I know you're a busy man running this business, so I'm just going to let you go. But um, enjoy the uh, fall season, and um, we'll catch up soon. I guess I'll see you next at Trawler Fest in Stewart. Yes, for sure. I'm looking forward to it, and I appreciate the opportunity today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trawler Talk, the podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, a long-range cruising authority. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and go ahead and click that five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. And if you're not a subscriber to Passage Maker, it's easier than ever to get our magazine delivered to wherever you lay your head. Just go to passagemaker.com slash subscribe. This episode of Trawler Talk features post-production from Nate Gruca at Active Interest Media. For Passage Maker Magazine, this is Editor-in-Chief Jeff Moser. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, fair winds and safe travels.